This is Recorded Future, Inside Security Intelligence. Hello, everyone, and welcome to episode 206 of the Recorded Future podcast. I'm Dave Bittner from the CyberWire. This week, we welcome back to our program security pioneer Graham Cluley. After starting his career writing the original version of Dr. Solomon's antivirus toolkit for Windows, Graham moved on to senior positions at Sophos and McAfee. In 2011, he was inducted into the InfoSecurity Europe Hall of Fame. These days, he's an independent blogger, podcaster, and media pundit. Our conversation takes a sometimes nostalgic look back at the origins of computer malware, what it was like fighting the good fight back then, how things have developed over the years, and what he thinks the future may hold. Stay with us. Oh, we're way back in the mists of time in the early 1990s. I was an antivirus programmer and I worked for uh, a European antivirus company called Dr. Solomon's. And I was one of their very first programmers. And then I went to work for McAfee and then I worked for Sophos. And for the last eight years or so, I've been working for myself. And I, I blog, I podcast, I stand on stage. Well, I don't stand on stage anymore, but I used to stand on stage and give <laughs> right. talks there as well. Now, before we move on, you had one of the more interesting, I don't know, uh, let's call it a party trick that you uh, that you used at uh, trade show conferences when it came to malware. Uh, and I think it's quite noteworthy. What was it? I used to do this trick. I mean, it was a long time ago now. I used to do this trick where I'd stand on stage and I'd say, look, I've got no earpiece. There's no one prompting me. There's no one who can whisper in my ear. I want you to shout out the name of a piece of malware, and I will tell you what it does. And people would say things like Frodo, and I'd say it adds 4,096 bytes to the length of your files, and it displays a message saying, Frodo lives, or the stoned boot sector virus. And I say one in eight times that you boot up your computer, it says your PC is now stoned, or Friday the 13th adds 1,813 bytes to the length of your com files, until that breaks when it reaches the 64K limits and it deletes your files. and for the, You get the idea. Um, right, right. Isn't it sad? Yeah. I still remember all these. Um, how, long, how, how long were you single back then? I, mean, I want to know. It was while I was an unmarried man, that's true. I wasn't have, I'd basically right. read malware encyclopedias. But, of course, um, two things happened. One thing was that the sheer amount of malware which was coming out dramatically increased as money became the driver. But the other rather more annoying thing is that the malware became more boring because all mm. malware was doing at the time was, you know, it just would open up a backdoor or a remote access Trojan to your computer. It wouldn't display anything on the screen. It wouldn't announce that it infected you. It wouldn't play a tune by Kylie Minogue through your speaker. Mm-hmm. So there was nothing really to say about them anyway because it was all just this, the imagination and the artistry had all disappeared from malware. Interestingly, some of that artistry has actually returned because now, of course, we are living in the era of ransomware and ransomware does want you to notice it, at least at some point. Once it's encrypted your files, it wants you to notice it and it will then display a dripping skull or you know, white mm-hmm. text on a, on a red background or do something more dramatic like that. Um, so we are beginning to see a bit more of the artistry coming back, but... Um, largely it's all doing the same thing again, isn't it? Which is just that it's locking up your files. There's not interesting stories. But the human brain isn't capable 
of remembering all the details of malware, which I was able to do in the old days for my party trick. Yeah, it, it strikes me that there there was back in the early days a bit of swagger that came along with the the folks who were creating these things. It wasn't just uh, the the technical thing of what they were doing or what they were trying to steal or access. There was a bit of a flex as well that, that I can do this. <laughs> Of course, there were way, way fewer people at it back then, even even users of computers. You know, this was the, I, I don't know, I may be going back a little too far, but this was the time when a, a business would proudly announce, we we bought a computer. Oh, you know? yeah. <laughs> right. Well, I mean, when I, when I started as a programmer uh, at Dr. Solomon's, um, I don't think anyone had email. Um, there, was a, there was a lady, lovely lady, used to push, push around a trolley which had tea on it, and it also had memos from other departments. And you'd receive a memo. If you wanted to reply, you'd have to give her the memo for her return trip in the afternoon. Um, <laughs> and that's the way in which we communicated. Um, we used to be able to read antivirus definitions down the phone to people or even fax them to people. We, we, we normally sent them through the post. So, it were, you know, there was no electronic distribution of these sort of things, which also, of course, slowed down the malware. But you're, you're quite right that... There were different kinds of people who were writing malware. And back then, it tended to be teenagers in their back mm. bedrooms. I, mean, I don't know. It was a long time ago for you, I know, Dave. But when you were a teenager, <laughs> yes, <laughs> when, yes. when you were a teenager, you had so much time on your hands. And yes. you didn't have Twitter and you didn't have video streaming services and things like this. And so you would do other things. You might get into music or you might read books. Well, here was a bunch of people who got into computers and they didn't really have a way of demonstrating their skill very much, but they would fall into a crowd, sometimes via bulletin boards, of other people who were writing malware and they would mm -hmm. write malware to show off. They didn't have girlfriends. They didn't have boyfriends. They didn't have much right. of a love life going. So they would show off that way <laughs> and they would have grandiose. They sounded like they were members of the World Wrestling Federation. So you'd have slarty Bart Fast and... Apache mm -hmm. Warrior and Colostomy Bag Boy and Ice Nine. Mm -hmm. and they, they would all have these names um, right. because they're, right. they're living this fantasy life where they imagine they're some master coder. And, um, and they'd, they'd create ASCII art logos for themselves. They, they really did. I mean, some of it, again, was quite artistic. It would be, do yeah. you remember ANSI.sys? This is going to be a real shout out to some of your older listeners. You used to yes. have to load up in your config.sys file when your hard boot uh, loaded. Um, you had this file, con uh, ANSI.sys, which allowed you to do some elementary graphical things. Not really, mm -hmm, um, mm -hmm. but some fancy graphics. And that was the kind of thing which these guys were good at, was like ANSI art, using extended characters. Yeah. Well, it's also hard to recall a time when... Uh, not all computers were connected to yeah. a worldwide global network 24-7. That, as you say, you had to deliberately dial a phone number, connect to a computer, yes. log in, download a file, run that file. You know, this we've become so accustomed to this always-on uh, ubiquitous global network on our mob mobile devices and our desktop yeah. machines. Um, it's hard to uh, imagine it being any other way. I, I never have that much sympathy for people who have a go at the elderly for, oh, they can't cope with installing apps or they can't cope with Netflix or setting that up or having technical problems. It's like, guys, you know, the whole world has changed fundamentally in 20 years, enormously. Mm. You know, how, 
If you're 80 or something, it must be, unless you've had an active interest in technology at the time, it, it must be bewildering how much has changed in such a short period of time. I mean, I'm not that old, but I remember when our computers were not internet connected. And if we wanted to check something like the cricket score, there would be one computer which was on a dial-up connection and you would have to visit that computer in your company to dial up. or And also that would act often as a, a sheep dip or a foot bath computer. So if any software came in to us at Dr. Solomon's at the antivirus company, we wanted to make sure it wasn't infected. So we would have to put it through the sheep dip computer where we had about 20 different <laughs> antiviruses installed and scan right. it with all of them because we were paranoid about getting infected. <laughs> By the way, you're listening to Memory Lane with Graham Cluley yep. and Dave Bittner. <laughs> grumpy, <laughs> grumpy old men. Here we are. <laughs> that's right. That's right. Well, I mean, let's fast forward to the present here. And, um, you know, ransomware continues unabated. It, it seems to me like, oh, back in 2018 or so, we thought that perhaps crypto mining might uh, replace it. Mm. But that did not happen. No, it didn't, didn't it? I mean, there certainly was a wave of that where there were like websites and malware which was taking over your resources and, and trying to mine some Bitcoin. I guess it just proved so processor intensive to get, mm -hmm. get yourself even a fraction of a Bitcoin. It didn't really work. And people noticed even on their high speed computers that uh, they, were, they were being compromised and having their uh, resources used in that way. So that hasn't really happened. I think most of the criminals have seen that there's two huge ways to effectively make a lot of money out of cybercrime right now. And they are ransomware and business email compromise. And by business email compromise, I include those sort of fake invoices coming from your partners, which often includes some element of business email compromise as well. Those two methods are gaining cybercriminal gangs millions and millions of dollars very successfully. and by using their anonymity via the internet, there's a relatively small chance that they're going to get caught. And so I think for many gangs who've previously tried other methods to make money, they've seen, wow, this really seems to work. And we can extort money from some of the world's largest organizations as a result. Yeah, and, and it seems as though as long as they are careful not to, um, you know, soil their own garden to to you know, only extort people who are in nations that are not their <laughs> own. Quite often, the um, you know their local governments are willing to turn a blind eye to them. Yes, I can't imagine what countries you're thinking of right now, David. Oh, but yeah, gosh. Yes, it's, <laughs> but yeah, you're right. The ones I, that check to see what kind of keyboard you're using, if it, it has Cyrillic characters or not. It, exactly. I mean, they will build that into their ransomware because they don't want to accidentally even infect um, companies based in the same country because they uh, they would rather the police did turn a blind eye. Um, and some, of course, these criminal gangs have literally earned hundreds of millions of dollars through this. And if they've got that much money, chances are they're going to be able to bribe uh, some of the cops who might show an interest as well. I, I know of one cybercrime gang where um, I believe uh, the woman he married, the head guy... <laughs> Not only has extremely fast cars with which he does donuts and the like uh, through the streets of Moscow, but apparently has uh, married the daughter of a high up policeman. And mm. uh, you, you, you tend to think, well, he's probably going to carry on getting away with it, isn't he? 
Mm-hmm. Keeping it all in the family, right? As long as he never goes <laughs> on holiday to the States, as long as he never wants to go to Disney World or anything like that. Right. Um, but but that's part of it, too. Is it, you see every now and then one of these folks gets lazy and they decide to take a vacation to some <laughs> country that, that has an extradition agreement with, with one of the yes. other uh, you know, Western countries and they get nabbed. Yeah, that is true. And I, I heard a great case the other day, um, moving on from ransomware to business email compromise, where, oh no, it was ransomware, where, where this, this guy basically hacked into a company he stole some data because, of course, that's the extra, the other thing that ransomware is doing now. It's exfiltrating data and then threatening to release it. So the hacker contacted the company and said, hey, um, I've got all this data. Um, I, I could release it onto the internet. I'm not going to ask you for money, though. What I'm really after is a job. I want you to recognize how brilliant <laughs> I've been and I would like you to employ me. And so what this company did was they spoke to the FBI. This guy was in Russia or wherever. They, they, mm-hmm. they, they spoke to the FBI, and the FBI person posed as an HR representative. And so they said, well, look, we're, okay, we agree. We're going to pay for your flight. Um, we're going to need your passport details in order to book the ticket. And this, this hacker was getting really excited about this. He eventually flew over to Seattle or wherever it was uh, and met who, a person who he believed was the HR rep for a job interview and turned out to be the FBI person instead, and he got nabbed. So the good news is plain old-fashioned human stupidity continues to catch some of these guys, at least. Yeah, well, I'm reminded of the one we had recently here where uh, there was a gentleman who wanted to blow up one of the Amazon, one of the AWS server centers, one of the big, big centers here in Virginia. And... um, he got caught because he was trying to buy some C4 explosives. And, uh, like you do. As you do, <laughs> exactly. And as luck would have it, the, the, the people he tried to buy the C4 from ended up being FBI agents. Uh, so they handed over the C4, which of course wasn't C4. It was just some, you know, some Marzipan, Play-Doh or something. something like, yep, <laughs> yes, yep. exactly right. And they, but they, they provided him instructions on how to wire it up and how it works and all that sort of thing. And he loaded it up in his car and went to haul, haul it away. And, and that's when the, he yeah. got surrounded by police cars and arrested. But, yeah. um, sometimes I guess it's better to be lucky than good. Um, but the other thing that that incident struck me, though, with was this question, because you there was an, an incident a few weeks ago where there was a fire at uh, a service provider. Oh, yeah, Europe. the data center in the Netherlands, right. I think it was. Yes, right, right. Yeah. And so what what struck me about that and thinking about the potential of a major data center like an AWS data center be, suddenly mm. becoming unavailable, a big smoking hole in the ground, I think everyone assumes that when they put their data in the cloud, that (laughs) part of that is that the data is then automatically being distributed around the world and it's being backed up and it's being protected and and all those sorts of things. And I have to be honest with you, I am not sure to what degree that is actually true. Yeah, I think we all assume it, don't we? But of course, it, it, it may not be going somewhere else in the world. It may be on the same site. Maybe this is the good mm-hmm. news about modern ransomware, Dave, is that we're, we're all getting a backup when our data's exfiltrated and we're not even having to pay for it. <laughs> right, we don't have right. to pay for it until we want to restore from, from the mm-hmm. backup they very kindly made <clears throat> of our data. Um, mm-hmm. but, but yeah, there, there, is, there is this assumption that, um, 
the cloud is somehow magical, but um, as someone very wise once said, it, you know, it's just somebody else's computer. Uh, and yeah. it, if that computer gets blown up, and if there aren't any backups or it's not been stored securely, then, you know, sayonara. Yeah, one thing I, that I haven't seen with ransomware, there's, there's been there's been sort of the specter of this happening, but I've yet to hear a story of it actually happening, which is not the data just being locked up, not the data, not a destructive attack, but the data being changed. Yes. Someone going in and altering the data. Yeah. Um, and I hear a lot of folks worried about that, particularly when it comes to things like medical information. Um, but so far, it seems like we haven't seen any real-world cases of that. Have, have you? I, I don't think I have. I mean, maybe it's happening and people simply haven't noticed yet mm-hmm. and assume it's regular mm-hmm. data getting corrupted. But I'm not sure what the big benefit would be to the person perpetrating uh, the attack. I mean, for right. most of them, it's not that difficult to get money out. I'm not sure you have to go to the extra effort of fiddling with the data as opposed to stealing mm-hmm. it or simply locking it up. You know, that seems to be an work well enough uh, to, to get people to cough up the ransom. Um, but potentially, you know, if the motives of the attacker wasn't actually to make money, if the motive of the attacker was instead to create confusion or uncertainty about data, then maybe that is something which could happen in future. It'd be interesting, wouldn't it? I mean, we see so much misinformation now right. online, and we see claims of state-sponsored disinformation campaigns as well. I wonder whether in the future, who knows how far away, we might begin to see data being deliberately meddled with and databases so that we just simply aren't sure anymore whether we can trust it. Because that would be a nightmare, because even if you have backups, can you trust the backup? How far back mm-hmm. do you go through the backups? Right, right, yeah. How do you know? What what is the one true copy that that can be trusted to be accurate? Yeah. We Hmm. did used to see malware in the old days, which did that, by the way. There was a um, piece of malware written by a Bulgarian... Here I go with my party trick again. Uh, A a virus called Nomenclatura written by a Bulgarian virus writer called Dark Avenger. And every now and then, it would look at your data file and it would take a little bit of the data from here up near the top of the file, a little bit of data from here way down in the file, and it just swapped them over. So nothing was overwritten, but it was like the jigsaw pieces were being moved. And again, really nasty attack. That wasn't being done for financial reasons. That was simply destructive in its nature, but it made it extremely hard to know how to recover from it because you, 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 know, you wouldn't know what data was right. right and what wasn't. It was just records in a database. And there's, there's no log of the There's changes. no log of what they've done. And, uh, you know, how far back through the backups do you go? And if you go back a year, does that mean you're going to have to re-enter all the data in between? You know, I, I'm curious, um, being in the UK as you are, um, do you suppose that there are any sort of cultural differences between um, the way cybersecurity is approached on your side of the pond versus ours? Are there any you know, cultural overlays that affect the way people approach their security? I'm not sure there is that much. You know, people people have told me over the years that they think um, British people are much more sort of cynical about things hmm. and, and Americans are more trusting. Now, in my experience of IT people, 
from both countries. We both seem to be equally cynical and sceptical. <laughs> I guess because we've been fighting on the front lines for so many decades against the bad guys. So we we all have this sort of Eeyore-ish cloud of gloom hanging over us as to what we expect. I think a lot of the UK's uh, principles of how to deal with attacks and so forth is actually led by America. What American IT administrators are doing, and indeed what the cybersecurity vendors are doing. And most of the vendors these days, let's face it, are American-based or American-owned. And so I actually think culturally, more and more of the world is becoming a little bit more American in terms of how it handles cybersecurity. As we start to open up here and the the vaccines are rolling out, um, businesses are opening, people are, are going out and about, what do you suppose we're going to see on the security side and people taking those machines that they've had at home back to the office, plugging them in? What do you think we're in for? Well, I think one thing we probably should all consider because we haven't been thinking about it too much is the risk of leaving devices on public transport, on trains and taxis. Remember, we used to worry about that all the time or leaving it in the back of your car. And you haven't been doing that recently because You've been static in the main. You've been working from home, or in some cases, some people did carry on working in the office, but most people just carried on in one particular place. What I think there's going to be is a slow transition for many people, because this this remote working has, in the main, worked probably far better than many people anticipated. Um, Mm. So I think there will be some people who will be in no rush to come back to the office, but those people... Mm who are beginning to be asked to come back into the office, we certainly need to have to consider the security of those devices as they're transported back and forth. And of course, you need full disk encryption and you need strong passwords and all the things which we normally talk about as well. But it'd be interesting to see if much changes. Um, A lot of people predicted that there'd be this huge... um, a huge peak in cybercrime with people working from home. I'm, I'm not sure if that's really happened. I think there have been some new challenges. But mm-hmm. overall, I'm not sure that it's massively accelerated in all areas. Our thanks to Graham Cluley for joining us. You can find his writing at grahamcluley.com and his podcast is Smashing Security. Don't forget to sign up for the Recorded Futures Cyber Daily email, where every day you'll receive the top results for trending technical indicators that are crossing the web. Cyber news, targeted industries, threat actors, exploited vulnerabilities, malware, suspicious IP addresses, and much more. You can find that at recordedfuture.com slash intel. We hope you've enjoyed the show and that you'll subscribe and help spread the word among your colleagues and online. The Recorded Future podcast production team includes coordinating producer Caitlin Mattingly. The show is produced by The Cyberwire with executive editor Peter Kilpie, and I'm Dave Bittner. Thanks for listening. 